We are back. We uh, usually do obituaries at the top of our third segment because that's just what we do. And the person who's passing, we should note, I think, would be Peter Camejo. Essay in the Sacramento News and Review uh, a couple weeks back by Sal Russo, described as a well-known Republican presidential strategist and founder of Move America Forward. We would refer you to that uh, complimentary essay by Mr. Russo, who, although he disagreed with uh, Peter Camejo, uh, nevertheless respected his political efforts over the years. I had a chance to meet Peter Camejo a few months back when I appeared on Jeannie Keltner's Soapbox on Sacramento Access. And I would like to add that although I don't always, didn't always agree with Mr. Camejo either, I certainly respected his going out and fighting the good fight and doing what he thought was right. Noted Sal Russo, while our political views were widely divergent, we found our goals amazingly similar. We found there were common ideas we could agree on, and it is possible for people with vastly different ideologies to find common ground. We both look forward to our frequent meetings on the campaign trail and occasional phone calls in between and since. I'm sure he got the funny looks from his staff whenever I called, just as I did. I think we have to return briefly to the subject of, uh, of the late, great Paul Newman. We quoted from the Vanity Fair article from a few months ago that, that noted that Paul Newman was not long for this world. But uh, the laudatory obituaries, both in The Economist and The Week magazine, I think uh, made it necessary for us to return and just say a few more things about him. Obituaries, of course, are many biographies, and Mark Twain once said about biographies that they are but the clothes and buttons of a man. The biography of a man himself cannot be written. I decided that certainly had to be true in the case of Paul Newman. I'd like to also note there are times when television or radio can, can give you the person or give you the event uh, much better than any writing. Case in point, uh, the Biography Channel re-ran uh, the piece they did on Paul Newman last week. It was probably produced a few years back. But I must say, the interview with the man himself so captured a bit of his personality that I think just did not come through in any of the things people wrote about him. He was known to be quite the practical joker, all the obituaries noted that, but he was describing one of the series of practical jokes that went between he and Robert Redford a few years back. Apparently at some point Robert Redford got a hold of a <laughs> wrecked Porsche, or at least it was, you know, the, the body of the Porsche, mi minus the engine, and the axle, etc. And I guess it was for Newman's birthday or some event, <laughs> he had it gift-wrapped and presented. So Newman set out to do him one better. He took this wrecked piece of automobile and had it crushed down into a cube. And then on camera he described, with a bit of a twinkle in his eye, how... Uh, he knew he could get into Redford's house. He went and convinced his property manager that he needed to get a key. So with three Confederates, they loaded up this 800-pound piece of scrap metal, got into Redford's house, and placed it in the entryway. He then described how he was waiting, waiting for the response, and he didn't, there wasn't any. So he called up Redford's house and talked to the kids. So how, how's it going, guys? Anything, anything unusual happening? And no, nobody said a word. And in fact, as the years went by, Redford never acknowledged the incident, which caused Paul Newman to kind of shake his head in admiration and look at the camera and say, so I guess he won that round. And you know, that's the sort of stuff you just have to love about the guy. Tom Cruise had a story about how Newman took him out car racing when they were doing The Color of Money. Cruise described how he was doing pretty well and thought he was going to take Newman when on the last lap, <laughs> Newman came roaring past, gave him the finger... <laughs> and then jetted past to win. 
But uh, one nice thing about Paul Newman, among many nice things, is the fact that uh, through his daughter Nell and their various food products, uh, labeled as Newman's Own, um, a lot of organic food has become uh, prominent. I read that a lot of growers with organic figs were really struggling until Newman uh, came along, the Newman family came along, and uh, bought their product to put into their Fig Newton equivalents. Nell Newman has a, now an organic food line of her own, independent of, uh, of Newman's own. So it is nice to see that uh, the, the, you know, things like organic food have gotten a shot in the arm from, from an actor who really you know, saw the bigger picture. One sad note about this is that it was finally revealed near the end that uh, what Paul Newman suffered from was lung cancer. And uh, the fact that he was at one time a chain smoker was certainly implicated in his, uh, in his demise. So if any of you out there are smokers, this might be a good time to consider giving up the habit. And the sooner the better. In his later years, apparently Newman was no longer a smoker, but the damage had been done. I had a chance to go see Religious, Bill Maher's semi-documentary. If you haven't seen this one already, uh, well, you might want to consider doing so. It ain't bad. In the movie, Bill Maher takes a look at uh, those who think they know the answers. Uh, well, people who are very religious. Bill Maher's punchline seems to be, uh, look, a lot of people want to tell you what happens after you die. Well, I don't know what happens after you die, and neither do you, speaking to the religious, because you don't have any access to any special information about this. I went to go see this movie with a recovering fundamentalist Christian, she was uh, especially struck by some of the scenes at the Florida theme park, Bible Land or Holy Land, I forget what the name is, but they basically have all these scenes from the Bible down there, including a reenactment of the crucifixion of Jesus, which is greeted, <laughs> greeted with applause by the audience. It, it definitely has its moments, such as the one when he uh, goes to a, a, a devout rabbi, I think it is, who has a, an invention, or a series of inventions, that allow Jews to perform tasks which are prohibited in the Bible on the Sabbath. As you may or may not be aware, it's the death sentence for lighting a fire on the Sabbath if you are, you know, a devout Jew. And, and by extension, technically, you can't flip on a light switch. So what these enterprising uh, Jewish inventors have come up with is a way that you can, you know, basically throw a switch and then you don't actually turn the light on the machine after a certain delay then does it. Which caused Mar to ask this guy, well, you know, if God really wants to prohibit this and you're trying to find a loophole in his regulations, don't you think he's going to see through this? Which in one of the funniest ad-lib moments of the movie, uh, an elderly rabbi who was a part of this enterprise walked by the, in front of the camera as this was going on and just muttered schmuck underneath his breath. Anyway, it's a good effort, but as you might expect from a director who put, uh, put uh, together Borat, there are many moments where, uh, you know, the person who's being argued with or is on camera is really the butt of the joke and sometimes, sometimes it's a little unfair. And speaking of movies, next week should mark the film debut of W, Oliver Stone's look at Bush, Cheney, etc. Uh, I didn't recognize him, but during, during the trailer for W, which aired during Religious, uh, apparently it's Richard Dreyfuss playing the evil Dick Cheney. I think they changed this, but originally the trailer for the movie had actor James Cromwell, who plays Bush 41, rebuking the young uh, Bush 43 
uh, with asking him, what do you cut out for? Partying? Chasing tail? Driving drunk? And of course, now we know that uh, no. In fact, according to numerous really, really wealthy people in this country, he was cut out to be president. Uh, as might be expected, some of the major magazines like Newsweek say they're not sure what to make of this trailer for W. They're not sure whether it's going to win an Oscar or a Razzie. We can pretty much promise you we're going to go see it next week. Speaking of uh, movie stars and politicians, we, we do have to get Lou Cannon on this program. Mr. Cannon uh, was well acquainted with the Reagans, well regarded by them, and has produced uh, more than one biography of Ronald Reagan. He did agree several years ago to come on this program, and, and the fault in not bringing him on is entirely mine. I, I feel in a special pang of guilt about I feel a special pang of guilt about this when I, when I see in Newsweek uh, the review by David Anson of a new biography of Ronald Reagan by Mark Elliott, titled "Reagan: The Hollywood Years." I think it might be noted that while Reagan's acting abilities never got him into the top tier of Hollywood talent, they certainly served him well in politics. Because he certainly auditioned for and got the coveted role of President of the United States. I read in a great quote about Ronald Reagan not too long ago from Warren Beatty, who once said, Although Ronald Reagan was somebody I disagreed with on most ideologic things, he was a friend of mine, and he was a very, very likable man. Ronald Reagan, for instance, was maybe more able to get the very rich to do the right thing, sometimes. And uh, how about this item from the world of movies? According to Forbes.com, Nicole Kidman is this year's most overpaid celebrity. Apparently, Nicole Kidman's film earned just $1 for every dollar she was paid. Landing the number two spot was Jennifer Garner, whose movies earned $3.60 for every dollar she was paid. Kidman's ex-husband Tom Cruise came in third. His films grossed just $4 for every dollar he was paid. But I gotta say, one for one, that's a bad statistic. Rolling Stone had a comedy issue a couple weeks back we should talk about. Uh, they had, they had one, one section titled, well, actually, I'm not sure I should read the title, but the point of the article was that... Uh, Everyone in Hollywood sooner or later gets a studio note telling them what they need to do to make some changes to, to suit the studio heads. Commenting on these, Robert Wyde, the director of Curb Your Enthusiasm, said, Larry, David, and I never had to take notes from H HBO, but in TV, the parlance is, put their stink on it. I've just always liked that phrase. Often in Hollywood, you get these notes that are somewhat harmless, but don't contribute any kind of an upgrade. At best, they're lateral changes. I'm convinced the reason for these notes is so the executive can sit in the movie theater on opening night, and when he sees his note executed on screen, he can turn to his wife and whisper, that was my idea. Mel Brooks described how in 1973, he was attending a sneak preview of Blazing Saddles, and the executive came over to him and said, get out a pad and pen. Starts, the N-word, Take it out. Yes, of course, says Brooks. Punching the horse, take it out. Out, yes, I say. Beating up little old lady, out. It's out, you're right. That was in poor taste, says Brooks. No farting. Farting's the worst thing ever on screen. Out, 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 I say. Then the guy leaves. I crumple up the paper and throw it in the trash. Never touch the film. I had final cut anyway. My favorite was David Wayne describing a primetime state special on CBS. One of the executives sat, sat down and told us that he looked around the room and noticed there's no black faces. He said, it's important you find a way to have some black people in the show because black people watch late night television. 
The reason why late night television appeals to black audiences is because black people don't have jobs and have nowhere to go the next morning. So they stay up late. They can't afford cable TV and they don't have the brains to follow drama plot lines. So they watch late night variety shows. Noted David Wayne, well, the remark got published and the guy had to resign. Anyway, let's close out with a few items from that uh, Rolling Stone uh, comedy issue. One section asked uh, comics what they thought the funniest movie ever was. Robin Williams said, Dr. Strangelove. He said, for me, that's the greatest character comedy of all time. He may be right. Chris Rock thought it might be Broadway Danny Rose, which is certainly not one of Woody Allen's most famous movies, but very, very definitely has its moments. Like when Woody, as the small-time talent agent Broadway Danny Rose, has among his acts a ventriloquist with a stutter. Comedian Gilbert Gottfried chose the Marx Brothers' Duck Soup, which again is, you know, certainly in our top four or five. He gave it the edge over A Night at the Opera, which is, is also should be in the top, you know, six. Bill Maher noted that The Graduate doesn't have a joke in it, and yet it makes him laugh all the way through. When they asked Phyllis Diller, she said, Recently I saw Borat. I thought it was tasteless. They also asked a bunch of comics what they thought the funniest TV was ever, and, uh, you know, there's the obvious answer. Chris Rock thought The Simpsons. But uh, there were some choices that maybe some of our younger listeners may not be familiar with. Don Rickles went with Jackie Gleason. Jackie definitely had his moments. Martin Short said The Honeymooners was just a perfect combination of reality and heightened situation. Larry David sounded off on rating Amos and Andy and the Phil Silvers show together. I want to say one thing I love about KDVS is whoever had the courage to play an old Amos and Andy radio program a few years ago, well, God bless them, because in spite of the, uh, the allegation that this is racist, you know, it was some wonderful comedy. In the case of the TV show, was the only time, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you saw black faces on television portraying doctors and lawyers. Aside from all that, uh, Tim Moore's George Kingfish Stevens has to be one of the great comedy characters of all time. All right, we got about a minute and a half left, so we'll do three quick jokes from the My Favorite Joke section from the Rolling Stones uh, issue. First one from Don Rickles. Rickles notes, true story. About 45 years ago, he's in the Sands Hotel with a girl he wants to be a big hero with. She asks, do you know Frank Sinatra? He's sitting at another table across the room. Of course I do, he says. She says, oh my God, if only I could meet him. Relax, I say. And I get up and walk over. Frank, I say, if you can come over to the table and just say hello, it'll help me with this girl. But don't come over right away. Give me a few minutes with her, okay? He says, sure. Rickles goes back over, sits down with her, has a drink. The violins are playing. Sure enough, Sinatra gets up over after a few minutes and walks over. Don, how are you? Rickles turns around. Frank, not now. Can't you see I'm with somebody? I think that's why the Rat Pack just loved Rickles. All right, second one, my favorite joke. This one from Craig Ferguson. Traveling salesman knocks on a house door. It's answered by a 10-year-old girl. She's smoking a cigarette. She's got a glass of whiskey in her hand. She's wearing a Victoria's Secret negligee, and there's rouge all over her cheeks. Are mommy and daddy home? asks the salesman. Well, what the hell do you think? asks the kid. And final joke by Zach Galifianakis. Guy goes to the doctor. Doctor says to him, sir... You simply have to stop masturbating. The guy's like, well, why? Doctor says, so I can examine you.
All right, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to write-in candidate for Congress, Dave Lynch. For more information, you can go to davelynchforcongress.org. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.